You're listening to Notes from Norwich. Well, welcome to uh, Notes from Norwich, episode number 14. 14. We just keep adding episodes. Um, I guess that's how this works, isn't it? <laughs> it is the theory. <laughs> it is, yeah. Uh, we're not counting down. We're counting up. So this is episode number 14. We've made it past unlucky 13. Where did we get the idea that 13 is an unlucky number anyway? Do we have any idea? I Let me ask idea. my the, the two other people on this podcast with me. My name's Chris, and I'm here with you two. Who I'm are Jay you? I'm JN. Excellent. Do you, uh, do you or does Julian have any idea why 13 is an unlucky number? Julian might have a better idea, but she doesn't tell us. She doesn't tell I us. I have no idea. Well, anyway, this is episode 14, so we don't have to worry about that. Um, <laughs> we're talking about chapters 32 and 33 in the Revelations of Divine Love. At least that's the plan for today. We always set out with a rough sketch of a plan and see how it goes. Uh, so where do we begin with chapter 32? She comes out of the gate with two applications that she draws from all manner of things shall be well, and thou shalt see for thyself that all manner of things shall be well. And she like, and from these two words, the soul receives various applications. Um, and one is this idea that God takes heed of the little things as well. And we were getting at this last week. Like if God's saying like, if I take care of this huge massive fault of Adam's, then how much more will I take care of the little things? Um, and so she says that he wills that we be aware that the least little thing shall not be forgotten. Um, and it makes me think of the passage in the gospels we read it recently for a daily office or something about how, how the hairs of our head are counted and that the, the spare, he, he who looks after the sparrows, will he not much more look after you? Um, it's kind of the converse. If he looks after the tiny things, how much more will he look after his beloved children? This kind of God of both the great and the small coming through here. So that's the first application. Yes. Do you want to share the second application? The second application is that the evil in the world is so great that we can't imagine how it can be righted. And it worries us and causes us anxiety. But God assured her that at the last she will see she will actually see for herself that everything is taken care of, that everything is well. Um, He says, pay attention to this. She says, pay attention to this now faithfully and trustingly. And at the last end, thou shalt see it in the fullness of joy. And thus in the same previous five words, I am able to make everything well. And she says that (laughs) part of the reason why we uh, cannot grasp why it seems impossible to us that all things should be well 
is that our reason is now so blind, so lowly, and so stupid that we cannot know the exalted, wondrous wisdom, the power, and the goodness of the Blessed Trinity. Is that in our finitude, we, we are incapable of grasping this greatness that makes all things well. Yeah, well, I think we get distracted by what seems to be the more tangible, the more clear evidence of our senses, which is that things fall apart and things get broken and we do bad things and other people do bad things to us. So I wonder if, in a sense, if one of the side effects of being, of living in the flesh as we do is that we are more acutely aware of our finitude and so it's just harder for us to see the wisdom and the power and the goodness of the Trinity just because it's not slapping us in the face every day, you know, mm-hmm. the same way that aching joints can remind us of our mortality and mm-hmm. uh, the newspaper can remind us of systemic sin mm-hmm. and all the other ways that we become aware of, of flaws it doesn't always feel as though everything's going to be well and i I know especially nowadays i just hear constantly that that uh that people are really having a hard time finding any good news in 2020 you know between murder hornets and the current administration and the wildfires in australia and the covid and the economic stuff and on and on and on. It's hard for us as people of the earth, as fleshly beings, it's hard for us to set what we know, what we know physically aside. I mean, it's it's impossible for us to set that aside. I mean, it, our survival as as an individual and as a as a species requires that we pay very close attention to what's going on around us and take care of ourselves and take care of others and and so for us to set it all aside for, for us to just push it off at arm's length and say god will take care of everything sounds and feels cold in one sense or just um, naive in another sense, one way or the other. And people, you don't want to be that. I mean, you don't want to be a fool and you don't want to be a mean person or a hard-hearted, cold person that doesn't care about what's going on in the world. So, so for, for Julian to hear this from the Lord, that no matter what she sees, no matter what she hears about, and she has, in her time, she had plenty of things, plenty of, there were plenty of bad things happening in her, in her lifetime as well. That no matter any of that, it is it is going to be it is going to be all right that god will make everything well in the end 
and I I think that I think that she had a hard time with that, but I think that she came to believe it. I think that she sincerely sincerely came to believe it. I mean, she she argued with our Lord for a day and a half. And so, you know, who would win that argument? Anyway. <laughs> so right off the the bat in chapter 32, there seemed to be two things going on, both the awareness that objectively God is going to make everything well, and also the sort of the subjective faithful awareness that this well-making is coming. Like it's not just enough that God's going to do it. God's going to do it one way or the other. God's going to do what God's going to do. But also there seems to be something important in us in Julian in all people. I don't know in, in humanity appropriating the knowledge, the certainty, the trust that it's coming. Yeah. That also seems to be an important part of it. Again, or else again God she, kind yeah. of do what God is going to do without letting us in on it. But like God seems to find ways to reach out again and again to kind of let us know that it's coming. There must be something in that. She keeps talking about how God wants us to know this. God wants us to find our comfort in this. That, And this is like her, her conception of what God wants from us is fascinating and deeply comforting in the sense that um, she, she shows God wanting us to look, see that we are loved, see that all will be well, and to trust in that. That that, that, that is what, that is where we're falling short, if, as much as anything, is that we, we keep looking away, we keep doubting, um, and um, we keep trying to pry with the, but, but how, but how, Lord? Um, but again and again, Julian shows Christ, I mean, puts words in Christ's mouth, or Christ says to her, uh, like, I, I want you to look at this and find comfort in this. Find comfort in this knowledge that I love you, that I have made all things well, and that all things will be well. Um, that's the gift that sh- she sees Christ like always offering again and again. Um, and that's, that's the missing piece. I think it's uh, like you said, it's, she, it's a matter of fact that all things will be well. God's going to, God's going to do that regardless of our awareness. Like you said, Um, The missing piece that Julian is showing us is that God wants us to be aware of that and to revel in that. And then there's the deed. Mm -hmm. Yes, there is a deed which the Blessed Trinity shall do on the last day. And what the deed shall be and how it shall be done is unknown to all creatures that are beneath Christ and shall remain so until when it is done. 
This is mistress mysterious. Yeah. It has to be hidden from us. We can't know what it is. And of course, right away, I would like to figure know what out it is. why. <laughs> I'd like to figure out a reason why we can't know, like, mm-hmm. would would lead me to wonder what it's going to be because I can't really think of a reason why we shouldn't know without knowing what it is. Oh, it's going to be that. Well, then no wonder we shouldn't know because that's, you know, that's too, that's too dangerous or that's scary or that's this or that's that. But we, we have to know that it's, that, that there is, I mean, that's, that's a big um, gesture on God's part, in my opinion, that he would say there's going to be a deed. I mean, that, that's, that's going, uh, that's going like the extra mile as it were, instead of just saying, I will make everything well, he says, I will, there will be a deed. There will be a specific thing that I do that will make everything well, but you can't know what it is, but you just have to know that it's going to be. And of course it's going to be, it's going to come from love and it's going to, um, you know, be beautiful and wonderful. And it's going to be from what I'm reading, from what I get of this, it's going to be quick and, and all encompassing and universal, like a boom kind of a thing. Yeah. I, and I, so the, I am not sure how to read her, like, this idea that we can't know. There are two kind of interpretations and they both might be here and alive in the text, but you can't, God saying to us, you can't know this. It, it's either like, you're not allowed. Like this is, this is not for you to know. There's also this idea that maybe we're incapable of knowing. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Um, but it's uh it does kind of so as i think about like my my incessant like but how but why um i think about a toddler who's just like constantly asking the the how and the why questions um and you know like there there might be this dual aspect of god telling us like just wait, there's both the, like, we're not supposed to get into it. Like, this is, this is not appropriate knowledge for us, but also that this knowledge surpasses what we have a framework for understanding. Right. Um, and that in a way, directing us to let go of these how and why questions is preventing us from some sort of spiritual harm. Because she talks about God wishing us to be more at ease in our soul and resting in this like knowledge that it will be done and letting that be enough um, so that we refrain from paying attention to the, all the temptations that would obstruct us from truth. Mm-hmm. There's this like, there's this looming specter um, that comes with digging deeper for her. There's this, this specter that I see of 
being distracted, being distracted from the point, um, which I think is a, it's a spiritual harm. It's a spiritual damage to, to, to be blocked off this obstruction of our gaze from Christ and Christ's gaze to us. A lot of, a lot of what Julian is talking about is about gaze, line of sight, um, line of understanding and attention. And this obstruction, if she's talking about an obstruction, um, then I think in her kind of symbolic framework, that's serious. Um, and then God is maybe protecting us from, um, from ourselves and our own, um, I don't know, think, thinking about things too lofty for us to comprehend. Uh, it's it's interesting for me to think about it in terms of spiritual harm, because I I think I, um, I think like many others I I see curiosity as in general a an inherently positive thing, um, but this is a sort of curiosity that is maybe different in kind from other curiosities. This is a this is a prying that could do me damage. Um, so it's a, it's a perspective shift that okay, maybe maybe this isn't just a wondering about the world. Maybe this is me sticking a fork into the electrical socket, and God is kind of guarding me from that. Yeah, I agree. I I absolutely agree with that. Um, I think that there are a lot of things that we shouldn't know about. And this is, this is probably the big one, but what do we really know anyway? I mean, do we really know how Christ is present in the Eucharist? Do we really know how the world was created? Do we really know what happens to people when they die to their souls? Do we really know that at all? I mean, we, I, you know, I, I think that, uh, I mean, I tend to rely on, on scripture almost entirely when it comes to things like that, questions like that. And I just let, I just let those words be what they need to be for me. And, and for better or worse, I'm satisfied with that. Um, you know, as, as far as end times, there are a lot of pictures painted about that in, in scripture and they're all very cloudy and mysterious and unattainable in, in terms of your knowledge. And that's, that, that's fine. I mean, that, that is that is how it has to be and i i think that it's a good point that there is a there is a level of knowledge that would in our present state in our in our fallen state if you will um in our unperfected state or unglorified state that it would it would be dangerous dangerous for us to i don't know could be definitely could be the deed. 
I think about this in um, terms of kind of, I don't know if esoteric is the right word, but this, this, there's an attitude towards contemplation that I know myself to be susceptible to, which is this idea of kind of trying to ascend to a greater knowledge of God. Um, that is, it's an intoxicating prospect to many, including me. Um, and it's associated, I think, or it tracks with an affinity for certain strains in the Christian contemplative tradition. I'm not going to blame it on those strains, but, um, that are fixed on, kind of a trans obtaining a transcendent knowledge. Um, and I think it's Frederick Bauerschmidt. Uh, he wrote a book on Julian and the body politic. This was not the point of the book. It was a dissertation that turned into a book, but he, he talked about these, these two types of contemplation and how Julian um, sort of, questions their relationship. So there's, there's this kind of transcendent apophatic kind of straining for a higher um, kind of abstract knowledge of God. Um, and he, Bauerschmidt argues that that would be the most familiar type of contemplation for Julian in her milieu, as mm-hmm. far as like what was idealized as Christian contemplation um, but then he talks about this kind of affective contemplation, which is the, the looking to the particular of God revealed um, and having that be the object of contemplation um, and not seeking to reach beyond that, but trying to set your eyes on that and let that be enough. And I'm I'm not doing his distinction justice, but there's this this idea that like Julian is is in this uh, context where, and I'm kind of ad libbing, fictionalizing, where like maybe she is seeing um, other religious sisters or nuns or people in her environment who are kind of idealizing this sort of abstract contemplative tradition and trying to strain for trying to reach for this higher knowledge, quote unquote. Um, And here she is saying, look to Jesus on the cross. That's where we should be directing our gaze. That always again and again, we should turn our eyes not not above past the clouds, but to God as God has made himself manifest to us in the person of the crucified word. Um, and I don't, I mean, there's a lot of like, that, that kind of framing presupposes a lot about the history, historical context of Julian and everything. But it is helpful for me as an application because I, I do find myself straining to look beyond the clouds into this kind of light inaccessible 
Um, and to have Julian kind of saying, no, no, look, look back down. God is, that is here. God is on the cross. Let that be your contemplate, the object of your contemplation. Um, and know that in this mystery, all things will be made well. It's a, it's a helpful corrective for what I, I see as a, uh, a problematic tendency in myself. And um, I see Julian kind of giving me a nudge back in a healthier direction. Do you think that makes Julian anti-intellectual? Does she say that we should not pursue curiosity or study or no and i think this is it's less about uh i think it's less about intellectual study and more about um sort of cloud of unknowing neoplatonic kind of um it's 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 not like theo- it's not like she's directing us away from theology she's I understand her as directing us more away from um, trying to reach beyond God as revealed. I I, I don't think she, um, I don't get any sense from her that intellectual pursuits are bad or harmful in any way. But I think... I think you could read this as there is a, there is a type of contemplation that um, can that can lead to trying to surpass our humanity, um, trying to grow beyond our humanity and um, and I, I think that's that's separate from intellectual pursuits. This is a this is a a, a contemplative bent that I think um, sets its sight on um, on that light inaccessible. And Julian is saying is directing us, kind of reminding us that 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 eternal word became flesh. We don't need, we shouldn't, we shouldn't brush aside the, the humanity and try to strain beyond it because God has taken on that humanity in the person of Jesus. Um, I don't, I don't think she's poo-pooing intellectual pursuits or even poo-pooing this idea that, that God is immaterial, but she's kind of, giving us a perspective check saying that we are human and God has become human in order that we might know God. And so rather than trying to bypass that, let's make that the object of our contemplation. Let's make that the object of our inquiry. I don't know. This, it it might be highly speculative but it is it is something it's a a couple threads that have been helpful for me 
And I don't know if, if I don't know if I'm reading them into the text or what, but. Well, Jay, and I think you're hundred percent right, but I have also heard people um, write Julian off as being naive and simple and the term anti-intellectual isn't particularly used because she doesn't really talk about intellectual pursuits in the way that we usually think of them, you know, like laboratories and original texts and whatnot. That's what, that sort of thing. But um, I have heard, I have heard people write her off for being, um, for simplifying things and for being, overly optimistic with the simplifying things. And I object to that strenuously. And I have to these people, but, you know, a a casual reading of Julian or a quick reading or a reading of this, that, or the other excerpt can, can lead you to that, to that thinking. I, I think her, approach to prayer and her approach to contemplation is 100% perfect. But that's because I believe what she says happened to her happened to her. And so if I had any doubts, if I had any thought that she was pushing her ego into this, into into her writing or into her explanation of how things were for her, I would I would be backing off. I would have backed off. But I find nothing, I find nothing in the revelations of divine love. Nothing, not one word, not one phrase that makes me think that she's that she's making it up or that she's uh embroidering it or enlarging it, or riffing on it, and in any way whatsoever. I just, I believe, I believe what she says. So here's something that I want to take from there and and ask the two of you. So what other mystics, contemplatives, have you dived, dived into? Yeah, that is the right Dove, dived into, explored. Doven. Doven. <laughs> <laughs> it's just as the word is coming out of my mouth, I was like, wait, is that right? I've been doing a lot of Duolingo stuff, so I'm thinking about <laughs> Spanish grammar a lot. Um, anyway, so you said that, Marguerite, you have kind of no real doubt, no cause for doubt that that this is a faithful and accurate record of something that truly happened to Julian. Yes, of course. Her take on it, but what? Um, what about other mystics, other contemplatives? Who else have you read? Who do you like? Who do you, who? Who else do you think has had a genuine encounter with the Lord and lived to tell the tale? Well, I'm not in a position to to judge others a and B I haven't read enough of anybody to the extent that I've read Julian, Hmm. but I think that I, I think that I could trust 
um, Ruth Burroughs, who is still among the living, who is still living on this planet, thanks be to God, um, I feel that I could trust Teresa of Avila and Teresa of Lisieux. And, 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 you know, I read um, Marguerite Porette's um, book, The Life of Simple Souls, or I can't remember the exact title. And I was interested in my reaction to it because I, it, it seemed like she was, she was embellishing what had happened to her. It seemed like she was, she was in there too much as a person, more as a person than, than I could have a hundred percent believed. But of course, Hmm. you know, and I don't want to write any, anybody off. I'm just, that's just not my, that's not my jam as they say. It's the mirror of simple souls. Is the mirror of simple souls. Thank you. That could just be French excess. She just embroiders everything in a yeah, in a well, very Gallic way. Yeah, while Gallic Julian way. is <laughs> sparse, and <laughs> I will add to that list Catherine O'Siena. Um, mm-hmm. She is somebody whose whose accounts I have read, and um, I I I am not comfortable making such a categorical statement as that there is no word um, in anybody that is <laughs> is uh, doesn't ring true. But I I read Catherine and um, I I hear an earnest communication of a genuine encounter with God. Um. She, she's an interesting case for me because um, it. We, I mean, we've talked about my experiences before, and so I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated in this idea, this kind of tension between mystical experience and mental illness, mm. um, and whether they're at odds, whether they're complementary, um, and so Catherine of Siena is an interesting case for that for me, but I read I read her and I say like. Yeah, this is this rings true. She's the one I've I've read the most deeply apart from Julian. All women. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Huh. Well, there's John of the Cross. I've not read him. He can be hard to read. (laughs) He can be. I I find him at least to be uh, like hiking those 14,000 foot peaks in Colorado. Beautiful, but Every, every step is tough. He had such a dr- dreadfully horrible, difficult life. Prison mm-hmm. and beatings. I mean, good grief. Yeah. 
anyway, Julian, thank you for answering that question. I've, I've been, I've had it in the, the, the back of my mind. I keep thinking, Oh, I should ask that again, but you prevent presented an excellent opportunity for me to toss it right over the plate for you. See now baseball's back. We can use baseball metaphors and things. <laughs> That's the rule. Um, so does Julian tread towards universalism? This is midway through, well, uh, the second half of chapter 32. So she does these, makes these two observations. Um, she, uh, and I looked at our faith marveling thus. Our faith is based in God's word and it is part of our faith that we believe that God's word shall be preserved in all things. And one point of our faith is that many creatures shall be damned as were the angels who fell out of heaven because of pride who are now demons and many on earth who die outside of the faith of Holy Church. That is to say, those who are heathen men and also men who have received Christianity but live unchristian lives and so die without love. All these shall be damned to hell without end as Holy Church teaches me to believe. But... (laughs) I mean, up to that point, she is faithfully reciting her catechism. Mm -hmm. But... Given all this, it seemed to me that it was impossible that all manner of things would be well as our Lord showed at this time. And then what? I had no other answer in any showing of our Lord God except this. What is impossible for thee is not impossible for me. I shall preserve my word in all things, and I shall make everything well. Is this universalism? This is my cartoon of me holding a blue butterfly is this universalism. (laughs) So the way I answer people who ask me if Julian is a universalist, um, it is a great deed and we shall not know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I will say, I don't think she would describe herself as a universalist. I do, however, think she gives us the tools or lays the groundwork for articulating some sort of universalism. Yeah, I agree. I don't think that she would call herself a universalist, but I call myself a universalist because of what I've read in Julian. Yes. So. (laughs) Yes. Julian might not be a universalist, but she's why I am. Exactly. Mm. Ditto. <laughs> okay. What about you, Chris? I don't know if I have the certainty to call myself a universalist. I have, since seminary, tried very hard to stay consistent on the idea that I have no idea what happens to people after they leave this mm-hmm. mortal life. Um. Uh, and I try to weave that as gently as I can into funeral sermons and into doctrinal sermons. And I, you know, as, as destructive as it is for preachers to go around saying, absolutely, this kind of person is going to hell, or you personally are going to hell. As destructive as that is, I also think that it's just as dangerous for me to say with any degree of certainty that everyone's going to heaven or whatever the blessed outcome of it all is. 
which I happen to agree with N.T. Wright, that it's probably an integration of the heavenly realm, Mm -hmm. which I describe as the whatever plane or realm of existence it is where God's presence is undeniably apparent and where God's will is perfectly done. That those are the two characteristics of heaven, and those can be found in rare cases here on this mortal, you know, the material plane uh, where we live, but only in fleeting moments. But in the realm that we would call heaven, that's that's the reality for everyone who's there all the time, and that eventually those two will just merge. Um. So I kind of agree with N.T. Wright on that. But who's going to be there and whether any individual souls will be left out of that equation? I um, refuse to be so certain on that. It's God's business and not mine. That is probably healthier than where I land. Um, Yeah, that's real. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if it's healthier that it, it feels intellectually honest to me. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, I, I want everyone to be saved, but what I want is not what defines reality. And that's mm-hmm. another thing that I, you know, certainly as a, you know, as a um, straight white educated English speaking male, um, I, I try not to let, my wants dictate the structure of reality because that's happened enough throughout the centuries. Um, so I try to keep a little gap there. Like what I want is not what uh, God wills necessarily. I try to, anyway, anyway. I think the way I articulate where I come down and I refer to this as universalism because that is probably the the simplest way to talk about it and also occasionally because it's the most inflammatory way to talk about it and I'm a sinner. Um, But um, I hold two things. One, that justice shall be served. And two, that God will make all things new. And that he means all when he says all. And that somehow both of those will happen. Um, that, that is what I will hold to. The, the, the philosophical theological apparatus I have built to kind of sustain that for myself is a kind of purgatorial universalism. But, um, I, I was talking with um, a young woman. She was exploring Christianity and had questions about hell and purgatory. And I, I said, those are the two things that I would feel comfortable proclaiming from the pulpit doctrinally. That justice will be served and that God will make all things new. And how that plays out, I don't know. But I know that it will. I proceeded to explain like how I've kind of built out an apparatus for thinking about it, but that, that those two core truths are, are my eschatology. 
<clears throat> so I don't know. That might actually be not far from what Julian is saying here. That what the church holds is true. Um, and all things will be made well. Julian isn't presenting us with a philosophical apparatus for understanding that, but she is presenting us with those two things. Um, and maybe, maybe it is best for us not to seek a philosophical apparatus to kind of dissect that. Maybe, maybe that is part of the, the prying into things too great for us that distracts us from the point. Um, that that's entirely possible. Um, but those, those are the same two things that I've held on to that I've gotten from Julian that I have sought to explain through universalism. If that makes sense. That's how I, that's how I see her giving us the groundwork is that she's presenting us these two things and the way, the way that I've intellectually come to like, Sync, harmonize those two things is a kind of universalism, but I don't think that's what Julian's putting forth here. Chapter 33. Well, she asks more questions about hell. Yeah. Hell and purgatory. Yeah. Where do you two stand on purgatory? You said purgatorial universalism, Sam. <laughs> um, oh, that's, that's a complicated conversation. But um, <laughs> <laughs> Well, we have 38 seconds. So. <laughs> My short answer is that I think that hell and purgatory are essentially the same thing. Hmm. And that the difference hinges on our state and relationship to Christ. Okay. There's this old saying, well, I don't know how old it is, but it says we are punished by our sins, not for them. I don't know if anybody's ever heard that before. Mm -hmm. um, I can attest to that myself. And this doesn't mean that in the afterlife there's there's nothing. You know, there's there's nothing awaiting people. There's no correction available to people. But being, being far from God, being away, far, far away from God, even if you don't know it, even if you don't believe in God, is agonizing. It is brutal and agonizing. And it's just... You know, I'm I'm not saying that that's 
all there is for somebody who is, you know, for, for every sin, it's just the pain of that sin is enough to balance things out. I mean, I don't even know if there's if balancing out as I see it or as we humans see it is something that is the way that God's working things out. But I know that I know that people suffer from their sins. I I I just know that. That is that is just a true fact. And I have had big arguments with people at church about that, about people who think that bad people are much happier than good people. <sighs> I'm rolling my eyes. <laughs> anyway, so in terms of purgatory, um, yes, I think that I think that we all suffer. I think that we will all feel feel all our wrongs in ourselves one way or another at one time or another. What about you, Chris? All right. Cracking my knuckles. I have a whole sermon on this. Um, So I think that um, uh, it says several places in scripture, but particularly towards the end of the, the revelation that nothing unclean shall enter into the presence of God. Um, And I think that that makes sense given all the metaphors in there about burning away impurities, the closer that lump of ore gets to the fire, the more, the impurities get burned away. And once you're in the presence of God, all that's left is love. Everything else has, has to be obliterated from that. And I know from observation, I certainly experience it in my own life that I have a long way to go. And I think nearly everybody that I know does unless you're a truly exceptional saint, you're going to die with some work left to do. So where is that work going to be done? Um, uh, and I have a very strong um, sense of the rightness of the doctrine of sanctification that we're justified in an instant, whatever that instant is. But then we have a lifelong process of being conformed to Jesus of putting away the old self and gaining the virtue of Christ. And so there's, I have, you know, my sermon is that each one of us is given a certain foot race to run. As St. Paul says, we've, we run the race that is set before us. And some of us in this life run the whole thing. We're dedicated and committed to it. And we die as saints and everyone can see it. They can see that we've done all the work we can possibly do. We make it to the finish line. And everyone cheers for us, and we get a day on the calendar. Some of us make it halfway down the track, and then we die with still half the race left to do. Some of us make it about four feet from the start line and then lie down and take a nap. Some of us sit right down as soon as the starting gun is fired and start you know, drinking booze, <laughs> and maybe we even wind up two inches away from the start line, but we still have that race to run. So um, since we know that death is an illusion because Christ has conquered it on the cross, 
we still have to run that race either in this life or in the life to come. And I think God, in God's mercy, has to give each of us all the opportunity to finish the work that we each have to do. So where does that happen? If if not during this mortal life, then there has to be some post-mortal life track where we can keep running our race. And we've we've got to we've got to do our work. Um, we can't shirk from that duty or that privilege of being conformed to Christ. So if that is a description for purgatory, that it's the training center where we go on and keep on doing the work that we have to do in this life or the next, then that, then I'm okay with that. Um, and so also, you know, so why, why practice virtue? Why go to church? Why follow a path of discipleship now, if God is eventually going to do in you, whatever needs to be done to get you where you need to go. Well, I mean, the sooner you get the work done, the sooner you get to relax and enjoy, you know, there, there's, um, there's delight in being done with the work <laughs> or even making progress in the work. Um, so yeah, I've I've got I've actually got a, a, a four part sermon series on it that wow. I tried to summarize for you right there. Um it makes sense. You know. Recapturing our destiny as as the royal priesthood that God made humanity to be. Anyway. <laughs> I can see the NT right. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you for coming to my TED talk. Um, I'm thinking I want to highlight um, one briefly that she here like she does not deny the existence of hell merely that it's not the point and I I think this is this is helpful in um, kind of refuting the ascription of kind of trite universalism to Julian that this, this kind of discourse I see some every now and again, people are just kind of painting her as a Pollyanna happy go lucky. Things are going to be fine. Um, she's, she's not denying um, hell and evil and its import. She's, she's just saying like, that's not what we should be looking at. Um, so this is, this is just a little, yet another little bookmark for me to put, like to, to respond to people who say that Julian says sin and evil don't matter. Um, that's one thing I want to note. Um, and then the, the last paragraph in this chapter, I think gets back to that, um, question of the spiritual harm of looking, asking the wrong questions. Um, because she says, for I saw truly in our Lord's meaning that the more we busy ourselves to know his secrets in this or any other thing, the farther we shall be from the knowledge of them. That the more, the more we are digging into that knowledge that is not ours to know, 
the farther we are getting from fixing our eyes on what we're supposed to be looking at. So why do you think that is? Or is that, if that's not inherently digging into <laughs> secret sitter, not mine to know. So I think it's, there's one of two possibilities. One is that the more we obsess over the question of salvation, the less capable we are of just trusting because the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of what is it? I have painted myself into a corner. The opposite of faith is certainty, right? Not the opposite of faith is doubt, but the opposite of faith is certainty that faith is a trust in something that you cannot know, but trusting in it anyway. I think Paul says something about that, right? Um, the other possibility is that the more we busy ourselves to know his secrets in this or anything, the more we um, spend too much time worrying about heaven and hell and the disposition of our souls, the like the more you spend meditating on that, the more time you spend thinking about the horrors of life because i mean hell whether you think that there's anybody in there or not hell is a terrifying thing to contemplate Mm -hmm. so if you're going to spend an hour of your free time contemplating how dreadful hell is or how dreadful you know human society is today if you spend all your time thinking about like war crimes in Syria or police brutality in American cities when you could be spending that hour contemplating God's love for you, which is ultimately more fruitful. So I think those are Mm -hmm. two different ways to think about this. They're not incompatible though. I think they're, they're complementary. I think. I think also um, and this gets back to um, the the kind of different types of contemplation that I was talking about earlier and the way I feel Julia nudging us um, that um, God has revealed himself to us in a in a deep and truly incomprehensible way that that Christ is there on the cross before our eyes um and that if we if we are if we have that before our eyes and we are instead trying to dig into the mechanics of salvation then we are we're we're setting something above god if god is meant to be our highest good god is meant to be what we desire above all else and god is right there in front of us 
I mean, God is right there in front of Julian. The curate is holding the crucifix to her, her face. Behold your maker and your savior. And if, if we can see that and still be asking about other things, that shows us that something is very wrong. That shows us that we are placing something else, knowledge, our own security, something, over adoring God. And I think that um, the more the more we dig in, the more we lean into that questioning, the more we are setting that those questions over and above our Savior who is right before us. I agree. Yes. Um, I think if we, anytime, and it is, it is so tempting, but anytime that we put ourselves in front of ourselves, in front of our faces, anytime that we are focused on ourselves, that that is detracting from where we should where we should be looking ourselves meaning our worries our our habits our sins our virtues our intelligence our beauty whatever we might be thinking about that then that's when that's when we that's when we have a problem and that's what that's what Julian is that's what Julian is all about. That's her message. I'll close with this. It is God's will that we have great regard for all his deeds that he has done. For he wills thereby that we know, trust, and believe all that he shall do. And evermore it is necessary for us to leave off involving ourselves with what the deed shall be, and desire to be like our brethren who are the saints in heaven, who wish absolutely nothing but God's will. Then shall we rejoice only in God, and be well satisfied both with his hiding and with his showing. Thank you for listening to this episode. To find out more about Dame Julian, the Revelations of Divine Love, the Order of Julian of Norwich, or us, check the show notes to this episode. You can reach me, Chris Arnold, the producer of this series, at Apple Tree Pods on Twitter, or on Facebook, you can find the page Apple Tree Podcasts. That's all for now. We'll talk to you soon. May God bless you.